0: One day a man was walking a little too close to a steep cliff and he lost his footing and he uh, plunged down the side of that cliff. He happened to be able to grab onto a tree that was about midway down to the valley below. And as he sat there and hung on that tree, he looked up and it was a sheer cliff straight up so he knew knew he couldn't climb his way out. And he looked down and it was a hundred feet to the bottom of that, that ravine and and he knew he couldn't just let go. And so in desperation, he prayed. And he cried out to God in a very short prayer. and just said, Lord, please help me. And what do you know, but a voice spoke back. The voice of the Lord responded and said, I'm here, son. What can I do for you? And he said, well, I, I've fallen down this cliff and, and I can't get up and I, and I can't go down. Can you save me? And the Lord said to him, I can, but you must have faith. And the man, as he hung from that tree, said, I've got faith. I've got plenty of faith. And the Lord said, okay, then trust me and let go of the limb and I'll catch you. And that man, he looked up to the top of that cliff again. He looked down to the valley below. And then he said, is there anybody else up there? Have you ever been like that guy? Have you ever been in one of those moments, in one of those situations, in one of those those circumstances where you're brought to the point of doubt? Where you've encountered a situation that brings doubt to the surface? Have you ever wished there was more concrete, empirical evidence to support your faith, have you ever wished you had more specific, tangible answers to your prayers, to your questions, to your dilemmas? If so, then the Bible says you're not alone. You see, throughout Jesus' ministry, he encountered a few individuals who dealt with doubt. Now, they didn't all deal with doubt in the same fashion. It's not like all of them had an issue with believing whether or not Jesus was the Son of God or believing whether or not God existed or anything like that. They just had varying degrees of doubt. And this morning, what I want to do as we get started in this sermon is I want us to consider three individuals that Jesus encountered who had doubts. The first of those is John the Baptist. Now, you hear that, and, and immediately you're going to be like me, I assume, and you're going to be like, how? John the Baptist, he didn't have doubts. This is not a guy who would doubt. John the Baptist, he's the guy who we read about in John chapter 1, who identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We read in John chapter 1 how John the Baptist had the identity of Jesus as the Son of God confirmed to him, when he baptized Jesus and that dove descended on him, the Spirit descended on him, I should say, like a dove, and came to rest on Jesus. And that, John tells us in, his, in the first chapter of John, of John, that was an indicator to John the Baptist that this was, in fact, the one who was to come, the Messiah, the Son of God. So how is it that John the Baptist would be classified as someone who had doubts when he's one who had such a fantastic confirmation of the identification of Jesus. I mean, this is the guy who's standing there and sees Jesus walk by and says, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And two of his disciples depart from him and start following Jesus. And one of those disciples became an apostle. How is it that this guy could possibly have doubts? Well, I'd like you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we're going to focus in on verses 18 through 23 for just a moment. And I want you to see an event in the life of John that reveals some degree of doubt. Particularly, let's read Luke chapter 7, verse 18 through 20. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. It's a reference back to the miracles Jesus had performed up to that point. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, at first glance, it may seem that John has sent these disciples to ask Jesus this question for their benefit. Maybe John's sending them so that they'll come to an understanding that he has that Jesus is the Son of God. But if you pay attention... Jesus's response is not directed to these two disciples. It's meant for John specifically. Go and tell John. You see, these two disciples that have come on John's behalf, their faith is going to be confirmed by what they see and and what they hear. They're there, and and if you read the, the verses that follow, they're going to witness Jesus's healings. And Jesus is going to tell them, Go back and tell what you've seen and what you've heard. You have firsthand experience now, and that firsthand experience is going to confirm their faith. But he intentionally wants John to hear from them what they've seen and what they've heard, and particularly what they're going to hear is a message that Jesus has for John. You have to remember right now, in the context of what's happening, John's in prison. In fact, John's been in prison since Luke chapter 3 and verse 20. If you were to scan back that far in your Bible, consider all the things that John has missed during his imprisonment. Look at all the events that unfold between Luke chapter 3 and verse 20 and Luke chapter 7 and verse 18. John missed the temptation of Jesus. John missed the exorcism of the demon-possessed man at the Capernaum synagogue. John was in prison when the miraculous catch of fish happened and the cleansing of the leper happened and the healing of the paralytic who was lowered through the roof. John missed out on the healing of the man with the withered hand and the selection of the twelve apostles and the Sermon on the Mount and the long-distance healing of the centurion's servant and the resurrection of the widow of Nain's son. All of those miracles happened while John was in prison. So he wasn't witnessing the things that the disciples were witnessing he wasn't getting getting to see firsthand the evidence of jesus's sonship and so when jesus instructs these two disciples to return to john he has a particular message for john it's in luke chapter 7 verse 22 where jesus instructed the john's disciples to report that the blind received their sight the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. In this quotation, Jesus is actually referencing several messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. The references to the healing of the blind, the lame, the deaf, and the raising of the dead, they fulfill multiple passages out of the Old Testament, such as Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 18, and Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 and 6. But the statement amongst these that really stands out is that reference to the preaching of the good news to the poor. Because this is a call back to Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1, which says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. When Jesus informed those disciples to return to John and let let him know that the poor have good news preached to them, It's going to bring to mind this passage in Isaiah chapter 61. A passage that says the Messiah will proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And where is John right now? In prison. See, I think John's doubts may have surfaced because he expected the Messiah to fulfill this prophecy. I I think maybe John was struggling with the fact that if Jesus really is the Son of God that was evidenced to him so long ago, then why hasn't Jesus proclaimed liberty to him? Why hasn't Jesus opened the prison for him? Why is he still stuck in this circumstance if Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be? And maybe John's doubt surfaced because of his expectation of what the Messiah do, would do. And he's left questioning whether or not Jesus really is the Son of God. And Jesus' response not only confirmed his fulfillment of Messianic prophecy, but also informed John that his understanding of the Messiah's role was inadequate. Because the freedom Christ would bring was not freedom from literal imprisonment, but freedom from bondage to sin, as Romans chapter 6 and verse 7 would allude to. See, I think John dealt with some legitimate doubt here, some legitimate questions about the Messiahship of Jesus, simply because Jesus had yet to fulfill this part of a prophecy that John expected him to fulfill. And when Jesus responded And quoted from this passage, he intentionally did not include this section so that John could understand that, yes, Jesus indeed is fulfilling prophecy. But that doesn't mean John gets to go home from prison. And so Jesus responds to John's doubts here in a very unique way. That shows us that maybe John actually did have a faith struggle at this moment. But John's not the only one to deal with uh, some faith issues, some struggles, some doubts. We also encounter a father in Mark chapter 9, verse 14 through 27, who has some faith issues as well. He's the father of a boy with an unclean spirit. Immediately after the transfiguration, Jesus descends the mountain with Peter, James, and John, only to find the rest of his disciples surrounded by a crowd, a great crowd, the text says. And they're arguing with this crowd. When Jesus approaches, he asks what they're arguing about, and a father speaks up. The father explains that he brought his son, who was possessed by an unclean spirit, to be healed. But the disciples could not cast that unclean spirit out. Now, pay attention to the conversation that unfolds between this father and Jesus in verses 22 through 24 of Mark chapter 9. Picking up at the end of verse 22, the father says, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. In other words, the father admits that he was not certain Jesus was able to help his son. That's why he said, If you can do anything. Now, what's interesting to me is that the father's, if you can do anything, remark came after Jesus' disciples were not able to cast out the unclean spirit in his son. Maybe the father showed up that day. Maybe the father showed up that day full of faith. Maybe the father was 100% certain that Jesus could heal his son, but when Jesus was unavailable because he was up on the mountain, he went to his disciples Those disciples attempted to help. They attempted to fill in for Jesus, but they failed. Maybe it was when they were unable to cast out that unclean spirit that doubts crept into this father's mind. Now, let's pause there for a moment. Let's consider for for a moment why the disciples could not cast out this unclean spirit. Because it's not Related to their being ill-equipped? These apostles have been empowered by Jesus to cast out demons previously. If you go back to Mark chapter 6 and you look at verse 7, you find out that Jesus has commissioned these 12 apostles to go on a little campaign in Galilee. Their job was to proclaim that people should repent, according to Mark chapter 6 and verse 12. He sent them out in two by two, in groups of two, to go proclaim that message. But in the process, he empowered them, we're told in Mark chapter 6 and verse 7, with the authority over the unclean spirits. And if you look at Mark chapter 6 and verse 13, we're told that they cast out many demons. So the disciples didn't fail here. Because they were not empowered to deal with unclean spirits. They had that ability. Instead, they failed because of their lack of faith. See, after the Father told Jesus about the disciples' inability to exercise this demon, Jesus said this in Mark chapter 9 and verse 19. He said, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, who do you think Jesus is talking to when he says, oh, faithless generation? Our natural inclination, because we know the story and we know the Father admits to having unbelief, our our natural inclination is to say it's the Father's fault. But let me have you turn over to Matthew chapter 17 real quick. Matthew's version of this story. Matthew chapter 17 verse... 19 and 20 is particularly where I want you to go because after Jesus casts out this unclean spirit his disciples approach him privately and they ask why couldn't we do it why couldn't we cast out this unclean spirit and in Matthew chapter 17 verse 19 and 20 Jesus says this because of your little faith For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. The reason the apostles could not cast out this unclean spirit is because of their lack of faith. So I want you to think about this scenario. The father brings his son to Jesus. That's what the text says in Mark chapter 9, verse 17 and 18. I brought my son to you, the father said as he spoke to Jesus. But when Jesus was unavailable, he went to Jesus' representatives, to Jesus' followers, to Jesus' disciples. And they couldn't do it. They couldn't cast out the demon. And their inability, due to their lack of faith, Maybe, just maybe, it influenced the Father's faith. Maybe, just maybe, their little faith shrunk the Father's faith. As one preacher has pointed out, unbelieving believers make it difficult for unbelievers to believe. Unbelieving believers make it difficult for unbelievers to believe. And it's at this point, after the little faith of Jesus' disciples made the Father's faith smaller, that that Father says, if you can do anything to Jesus. And then upon hearing Jesus say, all things are possible for one who believes, the Father willingly admitted his faith struggle. Did you catch that? In the very presence of Jesus, this father admits that he has a faith struggle, and he says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And then Jesus performs a miracle. I'm certain that father had no trouble believing after that. So John the Baptist had some doubts. This father had some doubts. But there is still one other character in the life of Jesus who had some doubts and he's the most famous of them all. His name is Thomas and he was one of the apostles. And he has become affectionately known as Doubting Thomas. And it's all because he missed the first resurrection appearance of Jesus to the apostles. And upon hearing about it, he said this in John chapter 20 and verse 25. Unless I see his, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now it's worth pointing out that Thomas is not saying he, doesn't, he, he will no longer believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's that he won't believe Jesus is risen from the dead. You see, Thomas Thomas communicates a lack of belief in Jesus's resurrection, and that lack of belief is born not so much out of a broken faith as it is a broken heart. I think we can come to that understanding if we back up and read about Thomas through the rest of the Gospels, and that's not too difficult because outside the listing of the apostles, Thomas is only mentioned twice, both times in the book of John. If you go back to John chapter 11, Thomas will speak one of two times he speaks prior to this resurrection appearance. In John chapter 11, Jesus has left Jerusalem because there had been attempts on his life in Jerusalem. He's chosen to relocate to the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing people out in the wilderness outside Jerusalem. And he's having tremendous success there. People are flocking to him. People are believing. People are converting. And then news comes that someone Jesus loves is sick. Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, the member of this family that Jesus was so intimate with, was sick. But instead of immediately leaving to go heal Lazarus, Jesus stayed put for another couple of days. When Jesus decided it was time to go to Lazarus, his disciples discouraged him because Lazarus' family lived in Bethany, which was a suburb of Jerusalem, just two miles outside of Jerusalem. And they knew that going there would put Jesus' life at risk again. And so all of his disciples are saying, don't go to Jerusalem. And Jesus eventually had to explain to them that Lazarus had actually died. And this caused Thomas to speak up. If you look at John chapter 11 and verse 6, upon hearing that Lazarus had died, And that Jesus intended to go to Jerusalem at the risk of his own life. Thomas said, let us also go that we may die with him. Now why did Thomas say that? I I don't necessarily think Thomas is saying we'll go die with Lazarus. He might actually be saying we'll go die with Jesus. Because the issue at play here isn't the health of Lazarus. The issue at play is whether or not Jesus should go that close to Jerusalem and risk his own life. And I think Thomas is saying, well, if Jesus is intent on going, then we should go with him and we'll just have to risk our own lives too. You see, Thomas, I believe, was prepared to die with Jesus. And I like the way one author summarized the character of Thomas here. He said Thomas was devoted to Christ. It is clear from this account that Thomas did not want to live without Jesus, and if Jesus was going to die, Thomas re- was prepared to die with him. And I've come to this conclusion because of the other time that John uh, that Thomas speaks. You have to jump to John chapter 14 to hear the other, only, only other account of Thomas speaking than the ones we've already mentioned. It's after the Last Supper. Jesus is launched into a multi-chapter discourse in which he presented some final words to his apostles. And it was during this discourse that he explained that it was time for him to go. In John chapter 14, verse 2 and 3, he told them that he was going to prepare a place for them and that he would return to take them with him that where he is, they may be also. And it's upon hearing this that Thomas speaks up. And in John chapter 14 and verse 5, Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas's chief concern here is not to be separated from Jesus. In his limited earthly understanding of what Jesus is saying, He's worried that he won't know where Jesus is going and therefore won't be able to follow him there. See, I think Thomas's chief concern is to be with Jesus wherever Jesus is. I want to reference this same author I mentioned a moment ago. He, he said this, Here is a man, referring to Thomas, Here is a man with deep love. He is a man whose relationship with Christ was so strong that he never wanted to be severed from him. His heart was broken as he heard Jesus speak of leaving them. He had become so attached to Jesus in those years that he would have been glad to die with Christ, but he could not think of living without him. I think that's the proper understanding of Thomas. Whether we're looking at John chapter 11 or John chapter 14, whether we're talking about him prepared to die with Jesus or him not wanting Jesus to leave and and, and not know the way to follow him. All Thomas cared about was being with Jesus. And on that night when Jesus was arrested, and the following day as Jesus was crucified, Thomas is broken. Thomas is separated. Thomas is lost. That deep love for and devotion to Jesus that Thomas had, I believe, affected his response to Jesus' resurrection. See, I think it's best to understand Thomas' refusal to believe that Jesus had appeared to his peers as an I'm-not-going-to-get-my-hopes-up type of mentality. We've all been there. We've all been in that mode where we, we just can't let ourselves believe. I'm that way every time Arkansas plays Alabama, especially after we lost to Liberty University at home yesterday. We've all been there. Can't get my hopes up because it'll crush me too much if it doesn't come to fruition. See, I don't think Thomas has a broken faith. I think he's got a broken heart. He's so distraught over the loss of Jesus that he could not let himself believe that he arose. That's three doubters that Jesus encounters. the thing I want you to notice is that every doubter Jesus encountered was treated by Jesus respectfully, lovingly, mercifully. Jesus never criticized, condemned, or excommunicated these individuals who had doubts. In every scenario, Jesus didn't focus on where their faith struggled. He focused on where their faith succeeded. Why? Why was Jesus so gentle with these doubters? It's because he saw more than their doubts. Jesus saw in John someone who was searching for the truth. He saw someone whose life circumstances had challenged his faith, and yet he had not given up on Jesus He saw someone whose understanding of God's plan needed to be updated, just like Peter's needed to be updated after he rebuked Jesus for foretelling his crucifixion. Jesus saw in John someone who needed to be further taught, not further criticized. And in the end, Jesus helped John overcome his doubts by giving him a message from God's Word that confirmed his beliefs. And Jesus saw in that father... A man who, despite whatever level un, un, of unbelief he was battling, he saw a father who took a step of faith. That father had enough faith to seek out Jesus in the first place. That father had enough, place, uh, enough faith to enlist Jesus' help. That father had enough faith to lay his problem at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus saw a man who was willing to admit that he had doubts. He saw in that father someone who was willing to be transparent vulnerable and honest about his faith struggles and he saw someone who was asking for help asking for help with his faith instead of giving up on his faith and in the end jesus helped this father overcome his doubts by providing the healing that was so desperately needed and jesus saw in thomas a man who was so devoted to him that he lost his way when he lost his lord He saw someone who was hurting, someone who was struggling with the heartache, the grief, and the pain that accompanies loss. He saw someone whose faith wasn't necessarily lost, but his life's purpose, his life's direction, and his life's meaning were. He saw someone whose faith wasn't necessarily... Oh, I just said that. He saw someone who needed to be consoled, comforted, and encouraged rather than criticized. And in the end, Jesus appeared to Thomas. Jesus invited him to touch those wounds. And Thomas responded with a confession that only a true believer can ever make. My Lord and my God. In every situation, whether it was John the Baptist, the father of that boy with the unclean spirits, or Thomas. Jesus saw more than their doubts. Maybe that's why the church is instructed to be a community that will welcome the one who has weakened the faith in Romans chapter 14 and verse 1. And a community that will have mercy on those who doubt in the 22nd verse of Jude as we read a moment ago. Maybe that's why we're called not to condemn, not to criticize, and not to excommunicate those who are struggling, but instead, were called to show mercy. As ambassadors of Christ, it's now our job to treat people as more than their doubts. Because when Jesus looked at these three men, he saw more than their doubts. Today, we begin a new series entitled, You Are More?, that is intended to to finish out this this year for us. You may be wondering why there's an iceberg on the screen. Well, scientists say that of any given iceberg, you're only seeing 10% of it. That up to 90% of that iceberg is below the surface, out of your sight. And that's why icebergs are such a precarious object out in the ocean. Because when it comes to the iceberg, there's more than meets the eye. As we look at Jesus' ministry and his interactions with people over the next several weeks, what we're going to see is Jesus saw more in people than they may have even knew was in them themselves. And Jesus sees more in you than maybe you see in yourself right now. This morning, you might be struggling with doubts. You might be having some sort of faith struggle in your life right now, and you're trying to figure it out. It's one reason why we're here as a family, to help support one another, to build one another up, to have mercy on each other, and to welcome one another even in the midst of our faith struggles because you are more than your doubts. And Jesus proved that when he went to the cross. When he died for you, and he died for me. And through his death and resurrection, there is a life that we can have that's eternal. Eternal. Maybe you need to access the cleansing power of Jesus that's available through His blood by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God by repenting of your sins and by being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. This morning, we invite you to come because you are more If you need to respond to that invitation, then please, please come.